What is up, everybody? We're back with another episode of the Fetch It Podcast. We have Aiden Grohl with us today. He has gone from 0 to 42 Airbnbs in two years, retired from his 9 to 5 at the age of 27 years old, and he is the co-host of the Blue Gems Podcast that we can see on the beautiful neon sign in his background. Aiden, what's up, man? What's up? Wow, what a, what an intro. You took all the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, make it easy whenever you're highlighting all your good stuff, man. So uh, bring us back to, you know, I, I just kind of announced all the, the highlights right now, but kind of bring us back to the beginning of like, what was the start of your real estate career? How did that, like, what were you doing prior to real estate? And then how did you get into it? Yeah, so my story starts, you know, back in 1995. I'll, I'll fast forward to 2018 for the real estate purposes. But basically, I was sitting down at a cubicle at my corporate America job, you know, way back in 2018. And I literally Googled, you know, how to retire early from corporate America. And I came across this site called, you know, Bigger Pockets, right? And there, and I, and this specifically, this blog post from Brandon Turner around house hacking and my mind was literally blown that there was this concept of buying a rental property before your primary residence you know i was shook that no not a lot of people were talking about this concept so you know that that was something that was on my my mind for a long time and you know it took me i would say almost two years to actually take any action though so i spent basically from 2018 to 2020 reading all the the books listening to all the podcasts watching all the youtube videos but i was too scared to to pull the trigger during that time i had started a wedding production company so i was working as a corporate accountant and i had this wedding production company on the side and then COVID came right and so weddings were shut down it was essentially a black swan event and you know i had literally no excuse at that point so i told myself if i don't buy a property now in march 2020 then i probably never will and so that's what I did. You know, I found an agent who happened to be an accountant at the company that I was working for. Probably not the best pick for, for a real estate, you know, folk, uh, real estate investor friendly agent. But anyways, you know, I told him, I was like, hey, look, I want to buy a duplex. Here's my budget. The goal would be to cover at least most of the mortgage. And so we made a few offers. I think on our fourth offer, I actually got that first property. And so the mortgage was two grand. I rented out the other side for 1450. I then actually rented a room in the unit that I was living in. So I was cash flowing for a few months, you know, in my own primary residence. And so that's when I got the real estate bug. I knew this was legit. And all of a sudden I had no housing payment, right? So basically all the money that was going to rent was going back into my pocket. So I then just bought another duplex. Now I had two properties, two long-term rentals, four units total. But what I realized pretty quickly was that these properties weren't bringing in a lot of cash flow. So I was at a hundred, two hundred dollars a door, and I was like, "Wow, how many of these would I actually need to leave my W two on a five, six, seven, eight thousand dollar salary?" And that's when I caught the short term rental bug. So this was early, early, early to late twenty twenty one. My second house hack, I actually built an ADU in my backyard. So the mortgage on that property was two grand. You know, this little ADU in my backyard was bringing three thousand dollars a month. I was actually making, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month to live in my personal home. And from there, I knew that was the strategy that would allow me to reach financial freedom. I knew that if I can get, you know, four or five really solid short-term rentals, I could leave my W-2. And that's exactly what I did. So as soon as I knew short-term rentals was going to be my strategy, I started to put myself out there. I met uh, my, my now business partner, JB Bullock, and he was an incredible visionary. He was the visionary. I was the integrator. We started off with, with the Blue Gems podcast. We then partnered on our first deal. We've since scaled to 42 units using basically every strategy in the book from house hacking, vacation home loans, subject to seller financing, DSCR. We have 16 units under our management company. So we started with the podcast did a deal, started the management company, have a local meetup. And really now my goal is to try to get other people to retire from their W-2. I just want to help people reach financial freedom. The feeling of sending in that resignation letter and waking up on that Monday morning, being able to control my own calendar was a feeling that I want everyone to feel. And so that's my mission now, just giving back to the community, trying to educate, put out content and keep scaling our portfolio. That's awesome. Um... David, let me dig into this one. Um, what market are you talking about? Because that's an amazing story. I'm gonna, am I, can I guess, is, are, you, are we talking Orlando or am I remembering incorrectly? 
Yeah. So my, in terms of my, my start, it was in Orlando. So my first property, the long-term rental was in Orlando. And then I bought another duplex in Fort Myers. Then my, my third property, the house hack ADU was also in Orlando. And then we started to branch out. So we started to look into Fort Lauderdale, Vero beach, Tampa, Clearwater. We're now in Phoenix, Scottsdale, and so predominantly in Florida and Arizona, we're, we're working on building two cabins in, in the Smokies. So Florida, Arizona, and Tennessee are our bread and butter. And, and that's kind of where we're at now. How have we not talked about this? You know, I'm building two A-frames in the Smokies right now. Yeah, because, because we're not as active as you. So, so we basically found a turnkey, a turnkey deal on Zillow with a builder you know, and, and we got a, a construction loan and then that's, that was pretty much our involvement. We said, Hey, call us when it's ready. So we're not as savvy as you actually, you know, you know, being the GC on the project and leading the build. We're very much passive on that project. So I want to, I want to dig into this though. So I actually just yesterday, I saw Yoni's post on Instagram where he was talking with a girl that he had on there that he was in the studio with that she was investing in uh, Gallenberg. She was saying, if I could, I would buy 20 cabins of Gallenberg. And like, you know, I, that was originally like the shiny object for me. I was thinking Gallenberg whenever I was first getting started, but then COVID hit and prices just went astronomical. And then I just like put it in the back of my mind, like I'm never going to invest there. It's too expensive. doesn't really cash flow. So tell me about the Smokies, like convince me why the Smokies are still a good idea. Yeah, I mean, the way that I always describe it to people is the reason why you see an increase in supply is because the demand is so strong. When you're investing in a no-name market, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's a reason why the, the, the homes are cheap and the returns might be, you know, higher on paper, but they forget that the occupancies are lower and there's really just not any traffic being driven to that area. You know, the Smokies is by far and away the most visited national park in the entire United States by a long shot. And so when I look at that statistic, statistic alone, I know that it makes sense to keep investing there because that's going to be more of a long-term play. You know, I might only hit a 12, 15% return in year one, but I know if I hold that property in year five, year 10, you know, I'm building generational wealth. For sure. So I, I it's funny. I had a, a cousin whose aunt uh, bought like, 10 cabins back in like oh, I think it was like the early 2000s or something and she sold out her entire portfolio like right after COVID hit whenever everything just went gangbusters and I actually reached out to her because we had stayed in one of her cabins whenever I was like really young and I was like hey do you have anything left I'd love to buy it if you had the opportunity she was like dude I just sold my last one last week I was like okay give me some of the numbers I have to know so she bought it for like 130 back in like the early 2000s sold it for wow. like $857,000 and she did that to like 20 properties like this she was like I'm gonna go try I was like, yeah, you talk about capital, capital gains that. on that one. Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I know the, the Smokies market. Yeah. It's something that Yoni and I, we, we've been kicking around other markets, but now that he's already there and it's like, all right, why are we being stupid and trying to like reinvent the wheel somewhere else? Why not look into the Smokies and see if we can maybe uh, scale there and just have, you know, economies to scale. Yeah. Not to say that there aren't, you know, sleeper markets out there where you can hit better returns by, you know, being first to market. And, you know, being being one of the the top, you know, producers in the area. But there's a reason why that market is so stable and has seen such good returns because the demand is just so strong. Well, I, I'll say into one more thing that I, I know that they're building a casino and a 300 acre amusement park. So on top of all, it's already from number one to number two national park, a big drop off in uh, in uh, annual visitors. But if you take those two things into consideration, could they go up a quarter or half a million visitors um, a year? Um, could, could, it, could it just go up because the, the stays there are so unique? You got tree houses out there you, on the water. You got, you know, you got Dollyville. You got all these sort of, and then you got word of mouth machine going. Um, could it go up half a million? I, I'm going to bet that yes, it is. I'm, I'm yeah. betting yes as well, for sure. Well, and it's a super recession resistant environment because like I, I live in the Midwest, like I've been to the Smokies, my family would go there whenever we were younger, like that's literally 
every single person in the Midwest, because you can drive like six hours from in any direction from Indiana, and the landscape really doesn't change much, except for like maybe hitting Lake Michigan and pretending you're at a beach. But uh, like the Smoky Mountains, like especially if we have a recession, like people are expecting, you know, we're maybe we're in one, whatever. Like people are still gonna go somewhere. They're still gonna go on vacation. They're still gonna want to stay somewhere. And so, what's the closest drivable thing that makes them feel like they're on vacation? The Smokies, and it's a huge market. Yeah, compared to a market like Orlando or Hawaii where people are spending thousands and thousands of dollars on vacation between the flights and the amusement parks. And so the fly-to destinations are inherently more risky as we're moving into a recession compared to those drive-to markets. Um, I, I, read a, um, I read a book. The reason I picked the Smokies, the original Spark, was I read a, um, I'm forgetting her name, which is not a good thing. Don't hurt yourself over there. It's Avery Carl. Avery <laughs> Carl, short term shop. I yep. read her book and it was talking about how in 08, the national park, specifically the Smokies held up. And I was like, I, I, you're sold towards that because that's, this is back in May when we were like, oh, the interest rates might go up. They're going to go up. They're going up. And so that's really why I, I ran into the, to the market, I guess, and, and also light, light ordinances. Like, that's another thing that I was really attracted to, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, if you want a place that's just like a guaranteed uh, vacation market, like nobody's buying a place in uh, Tennessee, or at least vast majority of people are not buying a place in Tennessee to like live there, and then they're going to get mad because they're renting a cabin out next to me. Like, the, everyone knows that just that area they rent out. Um, but okay, no, enough about us drooling over the Smokies, even though it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, actually, no, wait a minute. One, one last thing. Do you guys have any sort of projections that you're willing to share with this Gatlinburg uh, property? Yeah, so we're shooting for 140. The interesting thing about these properties, though, is they're being built next to each other. So we're going to have a third listing that would essentially be two properties combined. And we're expecting to have revenue, you know, probably go 20% above 140 if we can get that third listing, you know, pretty booked out. Because now we're talking about, a, you know, 20, 25 guests between, you know, the, the listings together. So we're very bullish on having the, the two cabins next door and offering it as one product. Yeah, because then you could get basically a whole wedding or like, you know, bachelor and bachelorette party all inside, you know, multiple cabins and stuff. And yeah, I mean, yeah, rent it out for thousands. That's fantastic. Man. Love it. Head, heads so, and beds. Um, that's right. Heads and beds. So um, whenever you started, so take us from like uh, you're, you know, you said you were house hacking, you were making money as uh, your Airbnb off the ADU that you built in the backyard. What was the next step after that whenever you're like, all right, I'm going to like, you know, put the pedal to the metal and I really want to start like scaling this thing. What were the next steps following that? Yeah, so the next step from there was really finding a partner, right? So I spent a ton of time trying to find that person that I know could could bring us the capital that we needed to scale, bring us the relationships that we needed, overall bring us the opportunities, right? I'm very much the, the executor, right? So you bring me an opportunity, I can make the deal work, I can actually make it come to fruition. And so that's really what I was looking for because I knew that at a certain point in time, you know, having already bought four properties, six units total, you know, there was only so, so far I can go with my own income, my own DTI. So I knew the next step from there was, was OPM, right? Other people's money and, and starting to scale through partnerships and raising private capital. Very nice. So let's, oh, go ahead, Johnny. Let's talk a little bit about that. So what is, um, Dave and I have been fascinated by OPM and fascinated by partnerships. Um, what's, what's, do you have a good, um, you have a good learning or a favorite par favorite partnership, favorite OPM story? Uh, maybe I don't know if they're different or the same, but could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 biggest gem here per se would be kind of the the structures that we've had, right? So the most common partnership structure that we've had is we find a W two earner. We say, hey, you're going to go out and get a vacation home loan. You're going to bring ten percent down. You're going to cover the furniture cost. We're going to manage the deal. We're going to find the deal. We're going to design the property and operate it from there. And we're going to split everything down the middle. And so we've done, you know, five, six, seven deals that way. And then what we moved into was the, the debt model where we would simply just pay someone, you know, 10, 12% on their money. And it would be, you know, a one, two, three year term. And we would use those funds as well for the down payment and the furniture, right? Because there's really only so far that you can scale using your own money, even though short-term rentals, you know, produce a lot more cash flow than the long-term rentals, 
you know, still talking about only buying maybe one to two properties without leveraging private capital and these vacation home loans and some of these lower money down products. So you're, you're literally right where Yoni and I, I think you're just like a few steps ahead of Yoni and I, what we're trying to do. So we're looking into, you know, raising other people, you know, OPM, other people's money to start developing some properties. So we're looking in, you know, Hocking Hills, Gatlinburg, looking around in a few different markets. And so, you know, we've looked into the debt model versus looking into bringing on a partner and using their, uh, you know, uh, uh, bankability to you know take down the loan so which one do you like what are like pros and cons of each one of them yeah so obviously the the pros in the equity model is that it's a lot safer in the sense that you don't have that loan you know on top of your original debt whether it's a dscr loan or or conventional loan whatever that whatever the case may be you essentially have two lean positions on one property so that's inherently more risky especially as we move into an uncertain market. Now, obviously the con is that you have to give up equity, right? So in, in the deals where we're taking over sub two or using seller finance or private capital, we retain full ownership rights to the property and we're not giving up any equity to, to the partner who's maybe qualifying for the loan or bringing the money for the down payment. So I guess to answer at the highest level, it's less risky, but you get to retain you know, more of the deal if you were to go in the, uh, the down payment the down payment private capital route. I love that as far as you're kind of like tailoring your uh, your approach just you know per the property. So if it's like oh there's a property that just came up on the market you know cabin in Gallenberg that's just on the MLS you br you could bring in somebody as a 10% down loan partner because it's on the market. But if you bring in something sub two to where you don't need the bank because you know that person's retaining that note, then you can just bring in private capital to uh, you know pay off whatever the note needs and then you can furnish it and get it ready to go and then you just bring on the capital. So uh, that's that's really smart. I like that man. Yeah, our, our, you know, I think our claim to fame is that we've scaled to 42 units with very little capital, right? So it's very rare that we're putting in more than 5% into a deal, and that includes the, the furniture as well. And that's even with paying professional designers and, you know, going, you know, all out on, on the re and renovations and design. Want to talk a little bit about design for a second with STRs? Want to talk a little bit of how you've done it? Because 42... 42 units across different markets require different design for different markets. I mean, I picked a minimalist design for my Cleveland downtown unit. I can tell you I'm not going to do minimalist design for my two A-frames. Can you talk a little bit about some interior design choices and exterior design choices maybe even? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I think as we move into 2023 and beyond, I think a lot of investors sleep on the importance of design, right? I think it is the most important thing, design and amenities, you know, those are the two more, most important things as we move into 2024, trying to stand out amongst the competition. And so for us, we, we raise enough money to pay a professional designer. And so in the beginning, we had the idea of designing in-house and building out a design company. We've since moved on from that idea. And so now we outsource the design and we pay professionals. But we will not enter a market like Scottsdale enter a market like Phoenix, even enter a market like Orlando without investing significant capital into the design because we don't want to compete with everyone else. We want to have a different product and really cater to, you know, the top 1%. Just to add real quick for the soundbite purpose, give me an amenity that works in one market and an amenity that works in a totally different one. Yeah, that, that, is, a, uh, that is a great one. So I would say, you know, one one that doesn't work well, well I can use our, our most recent acquisition right so we just did a all out bachelorette house in, in Scottsdale Arizona now good luck trying that strategy in Orlando so when I tell people you know the design the amenities have to match the avatar you have to know your numbers and have to do significant amount of research up front because we went all out on this bachelorette theme to converting the laundry room into a getting ready area. We had pink dinosaurs, you know, we, we didn't spare anything by catering to our avatar. So if we guessed wrong, that would be a very poor decision, a very poor investment. So you have to know who you're catering to in your market when it comes to selecting your design, you know, and your amenities. 
Yeah, I, I always knew that design was important, but then whenever we had the Carwells on our podcast and them to just like put on a masterclass in design, and then I found out how much they budget for design for their properties, I about shit my pants because they said they average. What did they say, Yoni? I think it was like thirty-three to forty-three dollars per square foot. They they a lot for design. So thousand square foot house, they're putting like forty-three G's potentially into design for that house, which is nuts. And so just uh, yeah, just a. a uh, uh, that is all. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Yanni, were you saying something? No, I was just gonna say that's the whole. That's the fun part of, of, of STRs. So we shouldn't look at it like it's uh, it's bad. Otherwise, real estate is kind of boring, to be honest. So I kind of like it, you know. Well, that's a good point, yeah, right? Because like, th think about how much can you do for a long-term rental, right? So you can do your renovations, but you know, a three-bed, two-bath in certain zip codes are not going to do more than $1,800 a month, no matter what you do. So STRs, you kind of create this arbitrage in the design, right? So you can have two properties, property A and property B. One is designed properly. The other one isn't. We're, we're seeing deltas of forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 of revenue on the same street. And so people need to understand, investors need to understand the importance of allocating the right amount of money into design. Yeah, uh, Pace Morby, he's talked about it before where uh, he mentioned stuff too, so I'm sure you're familiar with Pace. Um, he's talked about his best performing Airbnb that he has. It just has like this huge mural of Rick and Morty on it. Like it's just something super random and just like weird, but it right. catches people attention. Like what's the point of design? The point of design is to catch eyes because whenever you're in a sea of, you know, 5,000 other people in Phoenix, Arizona, you've got to be able to stand out to people. And so, yeah, having a Rick and Morty mural is obviously working for them because he said it's their best performing Airbnb. So design super important 100% so moving forward then so you decided or you started using other, uh, other people's capital so then you were able to scale ex exponentially fast you know 40 some units in two years so what kind of growing pains do you guys experience within that two-year period because I'm sure it's got to be rough I mean most people are lucky to buy one property per year let alone 40 yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because part of the 42, you know, 16 of those are management clients, right? So essentially what happened was we, we acquired so many properties that we, we had to build out the infrastructure to manage them. So we accidentally built a property management company. So people started to approach us like, hey, Blue Gems team, can you manage our property? So we naturally, you know, we offered a product of, of, of hey, we can manage your property and you can be completely passive. We know what we're doing. We're investors first. You know, we, we understand how to drive revenue and, and, and how to properly operate, you know, a short-term rental. And so that's what we did, right? So now we have a team of five virtual assistants, and then we have an operations manager that oversees all five of them. We have 24-7 coverage. You know, we have 4.95 across the entire portfolio. So we, you know, we try to retain our quality of excellence as we you know, as we scale, because that's super important for us. That's always been important from the beginning. You know, even though we're scaling and acquiring more properties, we have to remember that at the end of the day, the most important thing is the guest experience and making sure that the people staying in our properties, you know, enjoy their vacations. And so, you know, the money is great and, and the, the scaling your portfolio is great, but you have to remember, you know, why you're doing it and who you're catering to. Love that. So, so, okay, you've had like, you know, this crazy growth over the last two years. So I won't even say like what's going to happen in five years because that's way too far down the road. You guys are going to be like to the moon by then. So what's like, what's the next 12 months, maybe 24 months? What's that look like for Blue Gems? Yeah, so really right now we're in a position where we want to, we, we basically want to reposition our portfolio and we want to focus less on units and more on revenue. So right now we're looking for properties that do over $200,000 in, in gross revenue, trying to acquire them for you know around a million to 1.2 million. We want to move into the luxury space because what we've realized is that we have, we have fixed costs for these properties, whether it, whether it be a VA or software or even accounting you know, or, or admin costs. There's, there's fees that it, that it takes to run a property. And plus we have you know, the, the time allocation for every single unit that we bring on. So there's this metric that a lot of investors don't talk about, you know, return on headache. So when we're acquiring a property, it takes a lot of time, especially creative finance deals. And so we really now want to only bring into our portfolio luxury properties that are producing a lot of revenue, whether it be for a management client or even our own portfolio, 
because at the end of the day, you know, we, we care the most about the financial freedom and, and driving that cash flow. And so I'd rather have 50 properties doing, you know, 200,000 than a hundred properties doing a hundred grand. Absolutely. So you take it like the, the Mike Elefante approach or the, um, uh, Ryan Maki, I mean, he was talking about that. He was like, it literally takes the same amount of effort to buy a $500,000 house as what it does to buy a $1.5 million house. But exactly. the $1.5 million house, hypothetically, should produce more revenue. You know, obviously do your homework. But if that, you know, $1.5 million house, if you're able to raise the capital for it, and it's going to produce, you know, uh, the same percentage of, uh, let's say it's a 20% profit margin, that 20% profit margin is going to be way, way higher on that $1.5 million property. Same amount of work, you still need to have a VA that's answering the guest that's going to be inside there at one at a time. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I, I completely agree with that model. I think it's amazing. Um, let me, let me ask you a question about luxury. So I've spent a minimal time on the Airbnb Lux side of things. I'm going to assume that's what you're talking about. Um, and we had, we had somebody on the pod. I'm having a lot of blanking moments right now. I blame that on stress, but, um, talked about Malibu Airbnbs, Lux Malibu Airbnbs. Can you talk a little bit about now that you're moving into luxury, does that change your opinion on the markets that you're looking at? David and I have a pipe dream of, I wouldn't call it a pipe dream, we're, I would call it a couple developments away. We need to do a Hocking Hills one, a Smoky, Hills, a Smoky, a Smoky Mountains one. You know, you can't, put, you can't put two plates on the bench press too quickly. You gotta, you For gotta sure. work your way up. So regarding luxury, what markets are you thinking about? Um, and we'd love to be inspired uh, by you a little bit here because we're looking up to you in this answer. Yeah, so I'm a Florida boy, right? So I got to stick to my roots. And, and it's interesting, like, so the way that I approach luxury and, and the way that I coach people on how to enter, uh, you know, the luxury market, you have to have properties that can do half a million dollars. So like if you're going on AirDNA, right, and you're searching a zip code, I want to see comps that are doing half a million, 750K a year, because that tells me that I can probably buy a property that it'll do a quarter million, you know, with ease. Some markets just won't have properties that are going to do a half a million. You just won't find it. And so you're basically limiting yourself to, you know, five, six, seven markets across the entire United States when you move into luxury because some, some markets just won't command that much revenue. So we love Scottsdale, right? If you go on, if you go on AirDNA for Scottsdale and type in a random zip code, you're going to see properties doing, you know, a million dollars of gross revenue. That tells me that there's opportunity in that market for someone like me to come in and have a few short-term rentals doing a quarter million dollars. Same concept for Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Orlando is interesting because Orlando, you have that as well, but you have to go crazy on the theming and crazy on the design. We're talking about, you know, lazy rivers and, you know, just all out on the, the Disney theming. There's just some markets in Florida, like you look at a market like, you know, Tampa or Clearwater. We love that market, but you're not going to see properties that are doing a half a million dollars in Clearwater Beach. They just don't exist. And so as you enter a luxury market, it's knowing your comps, knowing, you know, the cap on the revenue, you know, how much can I drive this up? And then knowing that if I were to go and buy a property for a million dollars, you know, how reasonable is it for me to hit 200,000 in year one? You're a huge beast. <laughs> I love that, man. Yeah, we were looking into the Fort Lauderdale market this winter. We spent four months there. I wish we would have known you were down in that way. We would have met up for a beer or something. But, uh, yeah, we were looking around, and, like, uh, I, I think I was still a little too a little too fresh, a little too green to, like, jump into those types of big shoes. But, yeah, like, I was looking at some of these properties. I mean, for a sub $2 million house, it's nothing for it to be spitting out, you know, two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 in gross revenue per year, which is, you know, crazy, crazy money. Absolutely. And, and the elephant in the room, obviously, is that the risk increases, right? So I can sit here and say, yo, go, go and buy a property for a million dollars. That'll do 200 grand. That sounds great if you have experience. But the reality is that if you're a new short-term rental investor, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. I would rather you make the mistakes on the $500,000 property, make the mistakes on the house hack, make the mistakes on the ADU. It's hard to mess up an ADU, but you still will. And you're going to learn a lot from it take those lessons and then go and buy the property in Fort Lauderdale. That'll do 200 K. Don't do it backwards because you'll lose a lot of money pretty quickly. 
That's another reason why um, I love that advice. You know, David and I instinctively, we wanted to go after a big market like Malibu. And we sort of said to ourselves, you know what? I'm, I'm making so many mistakes on my Smoky Mountains development. And I could look, you know, now's not the time that I just predicted that on a more expensive, more sophisticated, more red tape market that I'm going to get my ass whooped. So I really like that you sort of have this staging, you know, staging complex, not, not just like from a, from a property portfolio standpoint, like you take on, you know, more complex jobs as you go up from an ADU on up. So I, I think you have a very healthy mindset. I had no idea when I met you at the Robinsons conference that I would learn so much from you. <laughs> no, but that's exactly it, right? It's just leveling up. So you start with the ADU, you start with the properties doing 30K, then you move on to 75K, then you do properties, you know, at 120 and then 150 and then you're looking at 200,000. And then after 200,000, it becomes a conversation of like, do you move into multifamily or do you do boutique hotels? Because, you know, there's only, there's only so much you can do, you know, after you move past a quarter million. So that's something I wanted to talk to you about. So, I mean, like with the, the Chris Choi's of the world, you know, where they got these crazy, crazy luxury properties and some of the other people that are doing like bigger, more luxury properties. Um, is it, are you finding that it's easier or is it harder than the $40,000 gross house or the $250,000 a year gross house? Is, is the clientele better or is the clientele worse? How is management for it? Yeah, the clientele is better, but I always, I always laugh at this question, right? Because I think it's exactly the same, right? So you're going to have the same problems with the air conditioner. They still have an HVAC. They still have a bunch of toilets that are all going to get clogged at one point in time. You're going to be calling your handyman twice a month, whether you're doing 30K or 300K. Same exact process. You're going to have issues with your cleaning teams. Now, the only thing that I would say is on these luxury properties, you can afford better vendors, not only, not only that, but you can afford additional operating expenses like, you know, inspection, uh, you know, quality inspections of like, hey, I'm going to send someone to go in after my cleaner to make sure they did their job well. Or I'm actually going to send someone every single time a guest checks in to meet them at the property and just say, hey, anything additional that I can do, I want to go above and beyond. You can afford that for a property that does a quarter million dollars because on a percentage basis, it's going to be small, you know, good luck trying to be able to, you know, add to your team on a property doing 40 grand. So I think as you scale and you get better properties, essentially you get better help, you get better vendors and that essentially makes it easier, but the process is still the same. It's a great answer, man. Yeah. Cause like you said, it's still, you know, the same answer or the same problems, the same kind of, you know, the same guests, there's same human interaction. All of it's the same, except, you know, you're just giving yourself a little bit more breathing room with more profit margin, at least hypothetically. Um, so yeah, we, whenever we talked to Jeff Alulian, uh, he, he did some really high end arbitrage units out in the, the Malibu market in LA and stuff like that. And he said it definitely like the clientele was easier, but you have to make sure that you're, you know, taking care of them to the nth degree and you have to make sure that that place is perfect. And so do you guys, do you guys, you mentioned having people like come in afterwards and like check in on the property after it's been cleaned and make sure that it's up to standards. Can you walk us through some of those processes? Yeah. The other, the other thing that I would say is when you get, when you get to that high of the luxury market, essentially you're going to run into what's called a concierge service. You're going to find that these, you know, higher net worth individuals, they hire someone to book the property on their behalf. So we have a luxury property in Aspen, Colorado, where I randomly got a phone call one day from, from someone that I didn't recognize, you know, their name. And they were saying, Hey, you know, we're checking into the Airbnb tomorrow. They told me their name. And I thought they, I thought that they were getting the bookings mixed up. What actually happened was they were calling on behalf of their client who was staying at the property. And so that to me was a game changer where you have these people that are paying concierge services to basically pick them up from the airport, drop them off at the Airbnb. They have, you know, private chefs come on a private masseuse. And so the experience is just way different. And so I would, I would encourage people you know, entering the luxury market to partner with these concierge services, you know, upfront and say, Hey, you know, we have this property in Scottsdale, this property in Aspen, this property in Fort Lauderdale. Would you be interested in a partnership where, you know, we can level up the guest experience and we could both win, you know, simultaneously. 
amazing man, I love that. Uh, I, I just have one last quick question about uh, like the, the the luxury market and like banking for that, and then after that we'll start moving into some of our like uh, personal questions, closing questions. Um, so my one question that I had was, as far as I understand, once you get above like the conventional like seven hundred twenty six thousand dollar range it goes jumbo after that and you can't do a 10% down. Is that correct? I'm just, I just thought of that in my head. Yeah. So good question. We're, we're heavy on the DSCR side because we've basically capped out all of our conventional financing. So we haven't yet tried to do jumbo loans conventionally. We're doing DSCR and then DSCR because it's, you know, unconventional in non-conforming loan product, there's different rules and regulations there. So we haven't yet run into any issues in terms of the, you know, property value and the loan limitations. But I believe you're correct in that the LTV changes once you go above that that loan limit. Very nice, very nice. All right, I was just curious about that. That was, that was a personal shameless plug for me. So, <laughs> uh, all for right, sure. uh, my, my, my favorite question that I like to ask people whenever we start moving into some of our uh, personal closing questions is, um, what is that deal that you've done in the past? What's the one that sticks out in your head as like, man, that one just felt good. What's the favorite deal that you've done? Yeah, I mean, for me, it has to be the the house hack ADU because you know not only did I did I learn so much, right? So this property basically all it had was a slab, so it was a hoarder house. It had been vacant for five years, and you know I, I looked at it as a pot of gold in the backyard. So everyone was coming to look at it. Nobody was making offers because they're like, why the hell do I want this random shed in the backyard? And so we converted it, we added, you know, HVAC, plumbing, electric, we added a driveway. This was almost a $100,000 rehab, basically a new construction, you know, project. And so going through that process taught me so much and it gave me the confidence to go and raise capital. It gave me the confidence to underwrite deals. It gave me the confidence to say, hey, I know that this is going to work out and you should partner with me on the next one. And so for me, that was a game changer because it allowed me to move on from just doing deals solo. At that point in time, I had only done three deals on my own. And so that evolution was what I needed to scale to 42 properties because without that deal, I would have been stuck buying one to two deals a year, probably still at my W2 because my mindset was too limited in doing deals on my own and, and not focusing on growth and partnering up with people who have already, you know, figured it out. Love that, man. Yeah, first is usually the best. I, I actually, uh, we have pretty similar stories here. So I, my very first property that I ever bought, my wife actually found it on the MLS. She's like, would this work for that house hacking thing you're talking about? I'm like, hell yes, it would. And so it had a carriage house out back. It is $150,000 property. The mortgage is like 863 bucks. And I rented it out to travel nurses as a medium to rental for like $2,000 a month. So I was cash flowing like, $500 a month off of my primary residence, which is just phenomenal. So after that, yeah, Bananas. I was hooked, same as you. Yeah, I think house hacking is such a powerful strategy, right? It's literally changed my life. I think, you know, I tell people first two things that you got to do when you start into real estate investing, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, step number one, step number two, start house hacking, right? It's, it's really hard to lose if you start with those two things. Completely agree. All right, Yoni, you want to go? Yeah. Um, who is, um, this is my favorite one of our personal questions. Um, I, I'm tempted to go down the book route because I saw your bookshelf and I'm a huge reader, but I'm going to go a different route and I'm going to say, who is the person you look up to the most in your niche? In the short-term rental industry? I don't even know. I mean, I'd consider even, even beyond that because you've done all these sub-two deals. You've done all these different types of real estate deals, you've done house hacking. So I'm just curious, like for example, if you asked me right now, who's somebody that I'm, I'm listening to all the time for building the Fetch It business, I would tell you Russell Brunson or Alex Hormozzi. Like that's what I would tell you because I'm focused on software. And that's the things I need to learn to get to my next level. Who's the person that you listen to at 42 doors that you need to, to get to your next level? Yeah, it's funny because I'm also Alex Hermosi, and, and I think that answer is probably, you're probably thinking that's unconventional because I'm a real estate investor, but I view our short-term rental portfolio as a business. And so when I look at someone like Alex, you know, he's a business owner, he's scaled multiple businesses to, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so for me, you know, consuming his content, figuring out how I can be better as a business owner, you know, 
managing this portfolio of short-term rentals, scaling our property management company, building a brand, building a community, right? So he, he built a coaching program, sold it. You know, part of, part of what I want to accomplish with Blue Gems is, you know, giving back to short-term rental investors, giving back to the community and helping people achieve financial freedom. And so, you know, I look up to someone like that who's already done it and has, you know, positively impacted so many lives. I love that, man. Yeah. And plus, he's just like so easy to listen to. Like literally every every like three sentence bit that he puts together is just like, oh, my God, like he just packs so much into such small little snippets. It's, it's phenomenal. He's an amazing, amazing. Yeah, and I think that comes down to experience, right? I think a lot of people are like, well, well, you know, what? what was your favorite book or your favorite podcast that allowed you to scale your short-term rental portfolio? And I would answer none of them because what allowed me to do it was making the mistakes, taking action, failing, and just improving on every deal, improving on every property and learning as we go. So really the key is to start. And that's why I love a strategy like house hacking or partnering up with someone who's done it before because it allows you to lower your, your risk basis, right? So you don't have as much to lose when you have a partner or you're using it as your primary residence. And so, you know, taking action and, and failing along the way is, is the best lesson you'll ever have. That's yeah, awesome. I completely agree, man. Yeah, house hacking, like there, I, I really almost can't think of a, a con of house hacking if you once you start getting into it other than like you made the privacy component a, a, t- a tiny bit of privacy you know what i mean but like a lot of people you can find like i call them luxury uh house hacks where like oh it's got an adu out back okay put a fence in between the two of you and you each have your own space if you know obviously it allows but like finding something like that can make a huge difference yeah yeah exactly My, mine is interesting because the adu actually faces a different direction than the primary home so it's so separate in the sense that it's not even, you know, having the same backyard or the same front of the, uh, of the lot because it's on a corner lot. So you have one facing one direction, the ADU facing the other. That's fantastic. All right. So next question for me then is um, we find a lot of our high level people that are coming on here. They have kind of like some daily rituals, daily habits or things that they do consistently to help get them to the level that they're at. So do you have any sort of like daily habits or anything that you think that you could share? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm the type of person who tr- tries not to spend too much time on the rituals and the, uh, the cold plunges and, and, and whatever you want to call it. And, and I think at the end of the day, it's because for me, it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle forward, right? So I'm very good at putting action items you know, on a CRM or in a notepad and just taking action and starting to get things done. I think that's the integrator in me. I'm, I'm sure the visionaries would be like, well, I take a cold shower in the morning, I do a daily journal, I meditate, I do the affirmations, and I'm like, by the time you've done all that, I've actually already had three meetings, and I've, you know, I've wrote out you know, half of our coaching program, I did a podcast, by the time you did you know, your whole morning routine. And so aside from going to the gym, and, and I mean, exercise is a must, right? So I wake up, I exercise, I get the blood flowing. But aside from that, you know, I'm all about just getting shit done and, and waking up early and, and, you know, attacking the day. I think that was actually uh, another Hormozy thing that I saw one time. He's like, yeah, but that, by the time you get all this stupid shit out of the way, <laughs> and I just, I roll out of bed and get a cup of coffee and just to get my ass to work, you know, like I'm, I'm light years ahead of you. And like, it's so true. Whenever people start getting into all this, like they put too much emphasis on it and it's almost like a stall tactic that they're saying, right. oh yeah, I'm doing something. You're procrastinating the actual work. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly I, I'm right, going to push back guys and I'm going to say, I do some of that shit and it's awesome, but I, I agree like if you just look at the it's dollars, a balance. If you look at the dollars and say, no, no, it's no worries. Actually, like I like that we're doing this. This is healthy. People can hear both sides. For me, I found I don't do the cold plunge, although I've always wanted to do it. I've never done it. I do do a lot of visualization stuff, and that's really helped me because I felt like in my situation when I started fetch it, it was such a um, crazy time where I had gone through the family business going under and a broken engagement that I needed to psych my brain out of shock. So like if a regular person who's like transitioning out of a W2, it, it hurts. But if you have a collapse, you need to do something to get your brain to, to like keep moving. Like, yeah, you know, in a regular situation, you can, you know, I totally believe that. But sometimes um, 
you know, I, I think you need, you need something else to get your brain to, to ignore the external circumstances and to almost convince yourself that they're not there. Um, but in general, I totally agree with you, right? Like that's an hour or two gone. And so for most people, they shouldn't even be playing with that stuff because it's all BS. And most people are looking for anything not to take action. But for those people that experience a collapse, you do have to shake your state out of something. Because it's like, what if somebody went through divorce? Which I didn't right. experience. That's worse. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, stuff like that, I do believe in that stuff. But Hermosi always talks about, like, meditation. Ew. You know? So I, I, I think it's nuanced. Like, we have to be careful what we tell people. It depends on your situation. Um, but in general, yeah, you don't get those hours back. And I think that was a really awesome little double take on this. I just want to say I enjoyed that a lot. For sure. That was good, man. Good. All right. So last question then. Um, so we like to ask people, what are some troubles that Blue Gems is having within your business right now? And how could our listeners potentially help you out? Yeah, so right now we're actively looking for deals over a million dollars that can do around two hundred thousand dollars in revenue. We're we're really trying to to scale in the in the luxury market, and you know, obviously the supply is more limited as you move into luxury, right? There's less five, six bedroom homes, seven bedroom homes, than there is three bedrooms. So we do get a lot of deal flow, but that's one thing that I think you know the listeners could help us out with. And then really just, I think, being active in our community. We have a free Facebook group. Would love to have, you know, anyone over there. We, we try to provide as much value as possible, give back to the community, and, uh, you know, check out our podcast as well, Blue Gems Podcast. We have on some pretty cool people. Lo would love to get you guys on as well sometime and uh, talk shop. So that would be awesome. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. And, and did you mention a course? Or is, or is that in the process or is that done? Yeah, so we are going to be launching in June a mentorship program where we're going to teach people how to leave their W-2 through co-hosting. So we're going to you know, go behind the scenes, share every single thing that we've done to generate leads. We're going to show them how to build out the, the CRM, how to hire VAs, and really just try to you know, live a more fulfilling life. And you know, going, going back to my original goal you know, at the intro, really just want to help as many people as possible leave their W-2. And so really excited to get the coaching program going and, and try to influence as many people as possible to make the same jump that I did. I know it's a scary jump, so I'm willing to hold people's hand as, as they go through that process and, uh, you know, guide them along the way. That's fantastic. And yeah, you might, you might have a customer right here because I, 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 I was able to get out of the hospital but still have W-2, but it's fully remote, so it gives me tons of flexibility. That's why I'm allowed to do this in the middle of the day. But I, I see the co-hosting side of things as just like a massive cash flow producer for you with such low risk because you're obviously you're not signing a lease. You're not buying a property. You're not doing any of that. You obviously need to have your shit together and make sure you're not going to like, you know, send somebody's property down the tank. But I think co-hosting can be huge. Um, Zoe Berghoff, we had her on the podcast not too long ago, and she was talking to us about uh, co-hosting, and she had some booking that was like for 7500 bucks or something. She was like, I get 15% of this. And so she's charging like below, you know, the normal market rate for co-hosting at 15%. That's still a huge chunk of money, you know, that's like $800, $900 that she's making off of that. And that's, you know, huge money for somebody that's trying to get out of a W-2 where they might be, you know, making 60 grand a year or something like that. So if you can get somebody into a position like that to where they're producing some of that, you know, thousand, two, three, four thousand dollars a month off co-hosting, that's life-changing money. No, it really is. You know, our properties average about $1,500 of net income on the co-hosting side. So you figure we have 16 of those. You guys could do the math. It's pretty significant income. And, you know, for us, it was accidental in the sense that we were real estate investors first. But to your point, you know, we love co-hosting over arbitrage because there's no furniture investment. There's very minimal capital required. And so really the only consideration is that you have to deal with an owner. So our secret sauce is we've gotten very good at, you you know, vetting owners and taking on clients that we know will be, you know, fantastic to work with. And so we're going to go over that in the program as well, you know, how to, how to make sure it's an owner that you want to work with. You know, one rule of thumb that we have is we only bring a client on if they're going to make money after our co-hosting fee, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be graded on whether or not the property is cash flowing. You could have five-star reviews, the property can be properly maintained, but if they're losing money, they don't care. And so we're very big on driving revenue 
and having our owners hold us accountable to the pro forma and making sure that they're actually cash flowing. And so if you're going to do co-hosting, that would be my number one piece of advice. You know, vet your owners, vet your properties, and only take on clients that are going to, you know, put you in a better spot than your W-2. I want to add something here. Um, I have an arbitrage deal in Cleveland, and it got me in the business. So I'm extremely grateful for that deal. I wouldn't, everything I'm doing now wouldn't exist without it. However, the ending of the lease has been weird. There have been, it's been hard to execute and specifically getting, like I don't have the wherewithal to get back to Cleveland to move the furniture out. That's a complication. And also the landlord's moving the rent up $700. $700. In Cleveland? In Cleveland. <laughs> wow. Sorry, not seven, $600, I apologize. That's still a lot of Still money. a lot. And that's like, makes it impossible to arbitrage. I would actually have rather just re-signed it and kept it live and just like, let it run. Let it run forever. I don't care, like let it run as long as it can run, you know, and my VA can manage it. I, he's already, you met Miguel, he manages all, he, <laughs> he manages my life, let alone the Airbnb. But I'm just saying like, and you know how that goes. I always feel like I didn't understand the dangers of the, of the ending. Um, I, I understood how to design it. I think I did a really good job, but the ending is nobody ever talked to me about that. And I'm learning it now through a couple, I would say, um, sticky, not sticky. It's just like, it's annoying. I, I got really lucky. Like I have a fetch a customer who actually is going to do arbitrage in Cleveland and, and, and they need the furniture and I'm offloading it to them. So I got lucky and they have a moving company. I got really lucky, but I, I just want, I don't know why I added that. I, this is something that I learned this month. No, it's, it's a great point, right? Because what do you do with the furniture? You might invest, you know, $7,000 a room up front. And then by the time you go to sell it, you know, you're losing 70% of the value on the co-hosting side. You know, there's no, there's no exit strategy issues, right? So if, if the owner wants to walk away or they want to self-manage, we've actually taught some of our owners to self-manage. Right. We say, hey, you know, we'll actually teach you to do everything that we're doing. You know, we'll take our fee along the way, but we want you, if that's what you want, if that's your goal, we actually want you to self-manage. We look for people now when we're bringing on new clients that are so busy or they have such, you know, a high net worth or a high income that it's not worth their time to manage. And so that's our target avatar. But if somebody wants to self-manage, we encourage it and we actually teach them how to do it on their own. That's, That's super awesome. cool, man. Yeah, because I, I, I think this uh, this course is going to be huge for you guys. And kudos to you for actually putting it together because it's amazing. Like, you know, you see the the Blake Roaches of the world, Sean Rochajik, all these other people like, hey, like 90 days, you can be out of your W-2, making 10 grand a month and cash flow from arbitrage. But in all honesty, like, you know, you're, you are incurring a lot of risk. And then, you know, that, that lease, you know, you're tied to it. It is going to cost you money. And like, honestly, co-hosting is simpler i mean because you're still going to have to manage properties so you might as well manage properties that have higher margins that can make you more money instead of some you know property in cleveland that they're you know jumping your rent by 20 percent, probably at least but yeah i agree that's, that's a, probably the quickest way i could think of other than you know house hacking and cutting your expenses immensely probably one of the fastest ways i could think of for somebody to quit their w-2 and like you know start making money in the real estate world with like the least barriers to entry because then especially you know people would say oh i don't have any experience because i don't have any properties or something like that but if they can say hey here's my blue gems resume you know i, I have my diploma from doing their course and this is all the crap that they put me through to actually get this i know my stuff i can do this for you that'll be huge for people so i think you guys are going to do an amazing amazing thing and i think tons of people will benefit from it yeah, no, 100%. I appreciate that. For sure, dude. All right, Yoni, uh, I think we have taken enough of Aiden's time. I think we're going to get him out of here. Anything else you want to say before we get you out? No, um, I think this was extremely insightful and inspiring and uh, gave me personally, helped me vi uh, visualize uh, my own scaling and, and yours, David, and ours. And so we appreciated it. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Aiden, I appreciate you guys. More about you. Yeah, so I'm at Aiden Grohl on Instagram and Blue Gems Group, at Aiden Grohl on LinkedIn. Don't have a Twitter. We also have the, uh, the Blue Gems podcast and then our Blue Gems Facebook group. On uh, Find me on there as well. Beautiful. All right, everybody go give Aiden a follow. Yoni, what about you? 
at Yonatan Waxman on Instagram, at Betchit.ai on Instagram, and the Betchit YouTube channel. Let's go. Beautiful. And I am David Rosenbeck. No spaces, no dots, no nothing. And that was another episode of the Fetch Podcast. Aiden, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate it. All right. Peace.